This is episode 11 of the Shauna Kay Show, Menopause and Your Brain, with guest Ryan Glatt. Welcome to the Shauna Kay Show. I'm your host, Shauna Kaminsky, health, wellness, and anti-aging specialist, and the best-selling author of the book, Lose Your Menopause Belly. I'll provide simple lifestyle hacks for you to regain your health and get your sexy back. Tune in for practical, easy, actionable steps to upgrade your health today. I'm super excited today because I've got a very special guest on the Shauna Kay podcast today, and that is Ryan Glack. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you, Shauna. Uh, A little bit of background about Ryan. His passion for human health began while studying at California Lutheran University, where he received a bachelor's in exercise science. And through his continued education, he accumulated over 15 qualifications and certifications relating to human movement, nutrition, mindset, and soft tissue therapy. After recognizing the absence in the discussion and application of brain health in the health and fitness industry, he began to feverishly study neuroscience and health technology. And by joining forces with some of the most well-known educational organizations in the fitness industry, Ryan has developed systems, techniques, and strategies around employing health coaching and human movement to customize integration, cognitive performance programs for individuals and organizations. Currently, Ryan is developing curriculum for the health and fitness industry on health, neuroscience, and coaching individuals towards optimum brain health and serves as a brain health coach. He continues to pursue education on the topics of brain health, exercise, behavior change, sleep science, breath work, coaching, and mindfulness with a focus on their effects on the brain. So it's suffice it to say that uh, Ryan is a brainiac that is so <laughs> interested in the brain. And I'm so excited because you have such great um, insight that's going to help our, um, our women over 40. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Shauna. I'm really excited to help out. Well, it was... Uh, uh, Ryan and I met at a recent fitness event and uh, yep. we just got to talking and I'm like, wait a minute. Wow. You have so many, uh, you know, so much cool information that I'd love for you to, to, to share, but really how did you get involved and in, like what, what sparked this passion in the whole brain health, you know, area? Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. I grew up as a very overweight, sedentary child, uh, just playing video games, very socially inactive, never really got into any sports. And around in high school, um, I was very socially awkward and uh, I was very impulsive. I had ADHD. I had a lot of issues mentally, but mostly I focused on the physical um, of being overweight. And in high school, there was a gym that opened up across the street and myself and two other friends joined it. And I just went there rigorously every single day, um, really restricted my caloric intake. I didn't know too much about diet. So I actually felt like I had somewhat of an eating disorder going through all that. But I did feel like I lost a lot of weight, and I did. And the biggest change in retrospect, now that I look back on it, I always told the story uh, of that at, for the reason of getting into personal training. As most people do, they lose weight themselves, and then they want to help others do it. But the more I think about it, 
I, it really changed my attention issues. It changed my social uh, intuition. It changed a lot of things mentally, probably more than physically. And that lifestyle uh, really inspired me to help other people. So I got into personal training. Uh, my original career goal was to be an exotic animal trainer for movies oh, wow. and television. It was kind of, I grew wow. up watching Animal Planet and I was really stoked on like training dogs and uh, I would watch movies like Air Bud where the golden retriever is playing basketball and like that was my jam. So, oh, wow. Um, wow. That, that dream quickly faded when I got rejected from the program of my dreams. And right. I, you know, just kind of fell into personal training and fell in love with it. And I just got obsessed. I took as many certifications as I could. And then I watched my mom go through um, kidney disease after having gestational diabetes after she gave birth to me. Um, and in the same years I lost my weight, she developed kidney disease. Uh, she ended up getting a leg amputation from neuropathy and having to go through all this physical therapy and specialized medical attention. And that really inspired me to get into physical therapy. So I began pursuing that. Fast forward, um, I uh, was really big on international service. And so I had done a service trip to Haiti in college, uh, focused around physical therapy and uh, clean water. And that actually led to an opportunity to move and live in West Africa, a country called Gambia, for about a year, uh, working with kids with cerebral palsy in their physiotherapy clinic, uh, and then helping with the clean water project. And because I wasn't really impressed with the options in the U.S. for physical therapy, and by impressed, I mean my grades weren't good enough. Oh, um, yeah. I, I, you know, it, it's, the process is very difficult, and I just didn't, uh, I didn't enjoy that process of taking the GREs and having to go back and retake chemistry courses. And so right. I applied out of the country, and I got into a school in Scotland, Glasgow Caledonian University. And so right after I was finished with my one-year term in West Africa, I flew directly to Scotland, and I had the wrong visa, and that oh. went to uh, a hiccup where I was in an interrogation room for eight hours. Oh, my gosh. I had just recently blown up my finger with a firework, and so they took me to the hospital to do it properly, uh, and that was painful. And oh. I woke up in an uh, immigration detention jail, and I was there for seven days, and then I got wow. deported back to L.A., and I'm like, well, I don't think physical therapy is the route for me. Um, so it was quite the wake up call and I started pursuing manual therapy in other ways. I pursued what's called structural integration. Uh, if you've heard of Rolfing, it's very similar yeah. to that, um, with a guy named Thomas Myers who wrote this book called the anatomy trains. Uh, so pursued manual therapy and I combined movement and manual therapy together. And so I was doing that for several years. Um, but really, uh, as I looked back on my personal journey and the journey that my mom went through and the journey that my father went through with bipolar disorder and depression and uh, all of you know my friends and loved ones, I started to really think about how uh, mental disorders and cognition really affected my life and their lives. And I realized uh, the people I w was working on, they would struggle with cognition, whether it was attention or memory uh, or energy levels or anxiety, depression, sleep problems. And they weren't unwell. Um, it's not to say that they couldn't get help going to a psychologist or a therapist, but it just didn't seem appropriate. It was almost in that right. preventative stage. I'm like, where is the person to help this individual? I, I mean, right. they can lose weight, they can work out, and they were already doing all of those things, yet why would they still struggle from these issues that are relatively preventable? Um, and so I really started to dive into brain health. Uh, and I realized that I'm a health coach, I'm a manual therapist, I'm a trainer, do I not have the tools to be able to help this person or these people? And right. uh, looking back on it now, I do. And 
did and everyone else does as well. It's just how we frame it. And what I mean by framing it is most people have a goal of something around a physical goal. It's weight loss, it's muscle gain, it's feeling better physically, it's looking different. But what if we had cognitive goals, mental goals, and we do have them, there's just not a safe space to discuss them and really focus on them and then create a health program specifically for that goal. And so it's really the same model of health coaching and employs the same tools like sleep coaching, mindfulness, uh, nutrition, physical activity, and then it involves a knowledgeable ability to refer out to allied health professionals, whether they be a cognitive behavioral therapist, a neurofeedback practitioner, and then the health coach also understands how to tweak the environment of the workplace, the home, the home environment, uh, the commute. Uh, right. These are all things that a health coach can already do. So if we just tweak them for a cognitive or a mental goal, why not? And so that's what I've been doing in my practice. And then I've been trying to put together a, a certification that certifies health professionals to be able to specialize in this. And uh, very soon we're going to be having that certification come out. So even yourself could go through the certification and then be providing uh, brain health-based services within the same context that you're already working in. I love it because, yeah. the, because the more I study myself, the more I work with clients, uh, a lot of their physical and you know, a lot of their goals can be achieved from the neck up. Oh yeah. Be, you know, like once we get the, the, the mindset correct, then other things fall into place. So I feel like that's a real missing link. Yeah. Mind's, mindset's a huge piece. Yeah, yeah. Mindset's a huge piece. I think there's a lot of attention uh, towards mindset and achievement and willpower and goal setting. And that's becoming very mainstream through coaching and, you know, tr- personal transformation, um, the whole human potential movement, if you will. And that's very, um, you know, there's a lot of neuroscience behind a lot of that, but I do see a lot of neuroscience being misused or a lot of inaccurate uh, or ineffective techniques being put out there. So I think there's also a a call for uh, research-based approaches that are, you know what I mean? So very much the same thing for nutrition or personal training as, as you and your clients know that it's very easy to find a lot of bullshit out there. And it's very much yes. the same thing for this brain-based stuff. Yep. The, the whole field of, uh, let's just call it brain science uh, to the public eye or neuroscience to the public eye, uh, people don't know a lot about the brain. I don't know a lot about the brain. Um, so it's very easy to prey on individuals um, right. who understand the importance but don't understand the nuances Yes. And then someone can say, oh, well, this addresses the brain and they buy whatever it is you're selling or exactly. they, they immediately adopt the belief that you're trying to push. And so that's a huge issue um, that consumers yep. are facing and professionals are facing. So I would love to help fight that and make sure that we have a, a system or a set of systems that are research-based. Well, I really love the research-based approach and that you're a real frontier in this, in this field and that it is coming from a research uh, model that will eventually turn into, you know, um, like a monetization for you rather than putting a product or service first with the research behind. Do you know what I mean? Like, because I feel like your intentions are, well, it might be a, you know, slower start because it's all research based and the, but the intention is to educate and to, you know, have it all, not just like, just make me money. 
So I, I really love that. And I think it's great to quantify or qualify that in the beginning for all our listeners that any, any information that you're providing is all, uh, you, you did research for this podcast, Ryan. I know yeah. because um, after we talked, after we spoke a few weeks ago, you know, you, before we got on the call, you're like, Hey, I've done some research. I'm really excited to talk about these things. So yeah. Um, my listeners need to know that you are not flogging any service or anything that you're trying to sell. And I'm very much um, appreciative of the fact, and I mean, you wouldn't be on this call otherwise, um, that, you know, you're just trying to disseminate great information and, you know, uh, dispel myths and, you know, give people uh, some answers. So, let's just talk about some simple hacks that women can do to manage brain health. I don't think it's really in, even in our realm of thinking that like we're looking after our physical health, our nutrition, our, our physical bodies. But I don't know if a lot of people have even thought, how can I help my brain? Yeah, it's really, really important, especially because, um, I mean, I think it's very appropriate to talk about menopause, uh, with your audience. Um, of course, yes. And, you know, it's very hard to delineate, according to the research, the symptoms of menopause and the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and they're very similar. And sometimes it causes a lot of stress for an individual because, you know, they may think they're coming down with Alzheimer's disease just because they're, they're going through menopause. Yeah. And there's all sorts of issues like insomnia, hot flashes, brain fog, mood disorders. Yeah. And one, it's gotten a very bad rap. It's been mis- misrepresented in the public eye. Um, and it's also been very under-researched. There hasn't been a lot of services for it. And I have a soft spot for that because I don't think women's health is something that's nearly popular or research-based enough. I mean, yeah. there's, there's more weight loss than there is stuff on women's health. And why is that? That very much frustrates me being surrounded by many women in my life who I see struggle with these issues. Exactly. I'm like, geez, how come it's so hard for them to find help? And unfortunately, a lot of them are, you know, you know, when you can't coach your family type of thing, right? Uh, yes. Um, because of the confirmation bias and the, all that stuff. But, you know, they're looking for public information. It's just not there or it's inaccurate. It's very, very frustrating. And there's, there's a lot of um, services or products that are just like, um, you know, give me money. I'll give solve me money, this. yeah. Or, or, fo- or focus strictly well. strictly on weight loss, yeah. where maybe that's not the biggest problem at the time. Yeah. And also, a lot of times, if we can, if when we help to help um, clear up things like not clear up, I, I get upset when people say we need to cure menopause because there's no curing. Menopause is not a disease. Like we right. would not call puberty a disease. Menopause is just a phase of life. Right, right. And and all the symptoms related to menopause, you know, they are what they are. But when we when we um, maybe clean clean up uh, nutrition, when we uh, help with some lifestyle issues to get better sleep and to move more, then lots of those symptoms can be uh, reduced. That's will, they, right. will they be eliminated? Maybe not. Will they yeah. be reduced? Yes. So maybe you could speak about that a little bit. Well, I think you summarized everything uh, that I'm going to say in just one statement. You know, Good diet, exercise, and sleep can mitigate the negative uh, aspects of menopause and it can also help with just about anything that's based in cognition. So while what I'll talk about sounds like it's complicated and, oh, neuroscience is very complex, uh, it all comes down to good diet, sleep, and exercise throughout the lifespan 
And I want right. to emphasize that it's not for a six week period. It's throughout yeah. lifespan. And there's no secret to amazing uh, cognition or brain health. It's the research is consistently showing those who are consistently active of any sort of activity experience yeah. cognitive benefits, uh, a positive, a, a good diet, good sleep. All these things are very basic principles that can not just help women through menopause, but also help people through the lifespan in terms of their mind and their body. And right. so it, it is that simple. Um, but common sense is never common practice. And sometimes, <laughs> Sometimes when we outline the nuances and the science behind the common practice, it can actually allow us to be more motivated to implement the common sense. Um, and I was also going to mention that when you're talking about good diet, sleep, and exercise over a lifetime, if someone has not uh, you know, had a great diet or sleep habits or not been an exerciser, the idea is that if we start now, we'll get a marked improvement. It's not like it's too late. It's never too late. And there was a lot of research up till I think 2008 uh, saying that, oh, you know, once you hit uh, adolescence, then your brain just stops developing. And that's just not true. Luckily, there's been a lot of research since 08 and way before 08, I think in the early 1990s, showing how plastic our brains are. And I'm sure you and your audience have heard tons on the topic of neuroplasticity. And yeah. this, is, this is very much the principle showing that we can change. Um, yeah. We know for a fact that your body can change at any age. I don't think anyone would argue that. I still think there's some beliefs of people being frail and not being able to adapt. But I think that's just a belief system that's just not true. Both the body and the brain are extremely plastic, extremely adaptable at any given point in life. Um, the, the thing is, as you get older, both with the body and brain, it just takes more stimulus in order for it to adapt. You're less and, unprintable. And consistent application because I think what one of the issues is, is that in social media and, you know, everywhere we see, it's like, okay, have this happen in 21 days. It's just the idea of instant gratification. It's like, yes, something can happen in 21 days, but, but we need to apply uh, constant or, you know, good diet, sleep and exercise longer than 21 days. It's the consistent application of small tweaks. And it's not that we have to starve ourselves or, you know, exercise for hours a day and have this monk-like existence so that we can sleep. Right. right. You know, there's small tweaks. And a lot of my clients and listeners, I know that, you know, weight loss seems to be kind of top of mind as their big issue. But yeah. the fact is, is that when we apply good diet, sleep and exercise, there's so many more benefits yet. Like it's such win, 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 because yes, there will be some weight loss, but then the other benefits in terms of brain health and, and uh, all the other things that, that result are, you know, the added benefit of the consistent application of those three principles. Right. Yeah. That's very well said. And I think behavior change is absolutely critical in anything that we come talk about. We're, we could talk about the most breakthrough neuroscience and application to health and wellness today. And if it's not consistently applied through sound behavior change strategies, it just doesn't matter. I agreed a hundred percent. So, you know, one of the big issues that I want to talk about, I want to talk about hot flashes and sleep Great. Uh, specifically, because I know I've been getting some messages from some of my clients that these are some things that are really impacting just their day to day. And they're very discouraged by their inability to sleep because I know 
myself, I cannot function when I'm not sleeping well. So can you yeah. give us some tips for sleeping better when your mind gets in the way? Sure. Let's talk about uh, hot flashes first because okay. it does relate to sleep and then we'll dive Perfect. into sleep. And yep. I just want to say, if it's not clear already, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a woman. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't have the, I'm just looking at research and trying to interpret it practically for people. Yeah. Um, yep. So anything that I say uh, has research studies. So if you or anyone else are interested in seeing the studies that I'm basing what I say off of, happy to send those over. Um, but I just want to get that out of the way. Yeah, appreciate um, that. But the thing with hot flashes is I have experienced them, not a, through menopause or through being a woman, but I have experienced uh, temperature dysregulation. And I experienced it for a majority of my life um, through a lack of proper amounts of testosterone. My hands would always get cold. Hmm. Um, my genitals were affected. My body was always cold. I get night sweats. I mean, there's a lot of problems that I still face to this day um, that are affected by hormones. And to talk about hot flashes, um, it, you know, it's a temperature dysregulation. Um, and a lot of people think that it's something that cannot be changed. Uh, but there's a part of your brain called the hypothalamus that regulates temperature. Um, and they've done studies where they look at the hypothalamus in a brain scan during a hot flash, and they see the activity undulating in the center of the brain. So there's that actual neuroscience behind hot flashes, um, which is really, really interesting. A lot of people just feel it's physical, but this part of your brain, the hypothalamus, regulates temperature, so it plays a really big role. Um, so the hypothalamus, if you've heard of the HPA axis in, in diet or exercise or lifestyle medicine, uh, just general health and wellness that promotes function, good function of the HPA axis uh, is a good thing. Um, but there, there's research showing the more fit you are, the more fitness that you have as an individual, the better your temperature regulation ability becomes. And hmm. so it might be interesting to say, okay, I'm experiencing hot flashes. What if I could reduce the severity of symptoms by becoming more fit? Um, and that's some really interesting research that applies directly to you, to me, and to your audience is because we can start being fit right away. Um, nice. we, don't, we don't have to do anything in order to get better temperature regulation abilities. Wow. Except being fit. I mean, you, you'd have to do something. You have to exercise. But, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, the amount of fitness really matters. Um, but I think also the type of fitness might matter. I'm not sure what aspect of fitness they were looking at. But if you're right. just doing resistance training, you're not getting a lot of metabolic variability, you're not doing intensity intervals or high intensity intervals, or maybe you're doing too much of those and not enough steady state with low intensity, you really want your cardiovascular system to experience a lot of variability. So just yeah. mix it, in, in layman's terms, mix it up. Mix um, it up. If you're just trying to do resistance training for some sort of aesthetic and you say, oh, my hypothalamus is going to benefit because of that, that's probably true. Um, but you might experience more benefit or more rapid benefit by having a variety of exercise stimulus. And the good news is that, I mean, that's the, that's the key to getting more fit anyway, is having variability, not doing the same thing over and over again, because, you know, what doesn't challenge you doesn't change you. So when we're adding resistance training, metabolic resistance training, uh, you know, having lower intensity days and just overall improving our fitness level, it's great to know that that is going to also have the side benefit of reducing hot flashes based on the fact that, um, you know, from brain studies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think environment plays a role as well. Um, I don't think 
people pay too much attention to the temperature of their environment. If you're always indoors and it's controlled, that's yeah. not how nature works. And so if you, yeah. everyone knows circadian rhythm by now, uh, that internal rhythm of the body that reflects the natural cycles of light. And there's a temperature regulation component that's tied to that. And so if we look at, you know, properly regulating our circadian rhythm, that can play a huge role in temperature regulation. Um, and that might include, you know, when you wake up, uh, going for a short walk or maybe between the uh, time periods of 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., going outside to get some sunlight because there's this part of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And if anyone sounds intimidated by that name, so am I. But it's, <laughs> it's right here. If you think of your third eye, it's, it's not your third eye. So if you're a yogi, don't get too excited. Uh, but it's right behind um, the skull in, in front or kind of in between the two eyebrows. And right. so suprachiasmatic means just kind of right above the eyes and the nucleus is just a part of the brain. And so when you experience sunlight through your eyes at those, at those periods of time for 30 to 60 minutes, I think 20 minutes minimum is what's required. Yeah. Uh, it kind of kickstarts your circadian rhythm uh, to be normalized. And so that probably, I don't know if there's research on this, but I'm sure that plays a role in uh, good temperature regulation strategies. Well, and then, I mean, you're speaking of like, we could just spill that right over into sleep because when we're getting more sunlight through our eyes, it, it helps to regulate our circadian rhythm as, as well. So um, yeah. like I, I can see how the segue is going now from temp temperature regulation and, you know, getting that sunlight, sunlight being the key, not just like artificial light into our eyeballs to mm -hmm. help with sleep regulation as well. Is that, was Absolutely. that the natural segue? That's the natural segue. <laughs> you killed it. You killed it. Um, so when it comes to sleep, um, there's some studies that show there's a disconnect between the subjective experience and the objective, objective experience in sleep in women particularly. It's, it's interesting. Uh, according to this research, men were more accurate in describing their experience of sleep and it matched what was measured objectively through data. But in women, it, in women, huh. it was not. Huh. So there's a disconnect. So it, it's almost uh, disconcerting because um, women might say, well, this is how I feel about my sleep, but that might not even be the truth. And mm. men tend to go to bed later and wake up later. Women tend to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier. Um, this isn't just automatic. You're not a robot, but this is what your natural biology as a woman is more geared towards. Um, but yeah, there's this disconnect between how you felt your sleep was and what your sleep actually was. And so measurement can play a really important role in knowing what's actually going on, what's your wake states, are you moving a lot, how's your temperature regulation, and a lot of people wake up multiple times through the night without even knowing it, and they say, oh, I got eight to ten hours, but they woke up a ton of times, maybe they didn't enter the REM sleep or the deep sleep states uh, at enough stages to get good quality sleep, and so your subjective experience is usually not enough to dictate whether you're getting good sleep or not. And so one of the best things we can do is measure. Now, here's frustrating component part two, is that consumer devices aren't always proven to be accurate in doing that. So your iPhone, Bet It, right. your Fitbit, they may not accurately measure what's actually going on with your sleep. They can give you an idea, um, right. but there's, there's better ways to measure that. Um, I work with a guy named Pat Byrne, who's actually out of Vancouver, another Canadian, yay. yay. Um, <laughs> always, I try to surround myself with as many uh, 
professional Canadians as possible. It really there you go. Um, so he's out of Vancouver and he's one of the most renowned sleep coaches and working with sports teams. So he consults with mostly NBA teams on their sleep. And he started a company called Fatigue Science that he now retired from but still works with. And they have a medical grade wristband that measures sleep extremely accurately, so much so they can predict cognition. They can predict what happens with fatigue um, before it even happens. They, they've gathered so much data from the military and through workforces using this wristband that he's now started a consulting business where he can send you a wristband for two to three weeks or several months uh, and you wear it and send it back and they analyze it and you know, kind of tell you what's going on with your sleep. It's very affordable as well. Um, wow actually more affordable than some of these devices. Um, so you don't own the device, they rent it out, but it's a medical grade wristband. And so right. whenever, whenever, whenever someone wants to really get into their sleep, aside from the normal sleep strategies or sleep hygiene that I can give them, I yeah. definitely refer to him because he, he knows what he's doing there. And I think it's so important to get medical grade data for an accurate representation of what you're doing. And Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so um, so basically you're saying that we, we, our perception of our sleep is a bit skewed that, that, you know, we're not accurately assessing our quality of sleep. It could be a little bit skewed to very skewed to not skewed at all. Yeah. Um, but the research is showing it's, it's relatively, I'd say it's moderately skewed. Yeah. Okay. So what do we do about that and how do we, you know, if, if I'm not, if I'm not really assessing whether I'm well rested, I mean, can't I just trust my body? Can't I just say, hey, I'm feeling energized and good today. Can I trust that to know that I'm getting quality sleep? What are the signs? Well, that, that would be subjective experience. I think the best thing to do is uh, if you don't go the route of measuring it in the way I described with someone like Pat, what you can do is just practice really good sleep hygiene and just assume it's really, really bad. And that would help you reinforce the behaviors that make it really, really good. Um, so it's like if you don't know your breast stinks, still brush your teeth every day. Don't wait until someone tells you your breast. Yes, right? got it. So, so very much the same thing with sleep hygiene is we can take a lot of preventative factors just assuming the worst, not to create anxiety, but to be preventative and not make any assumptions. So I've been talking a lot about sleep hygiene. And I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big advocate of, of practicing, you know, some of the you know, principles of sleep hygiene to create that, like how important the environment is to, to set yourself up for quality sleep. So I've been, I've been singing that song for a long time. So let's absolutely give us a, a few of your tips. I'm, I, they might be the same. I, I'd love to hear if there's some new ones. Yeah. Well, there's a couple biological principles I want to talk about first. Uh, the first one is that women, but not men are affected by their sex hormones and sleep, meaning that men's sex hormones um, do not affect their sleep patterns, but women's sex hormones do, meaning that when we might go, to, go through menopause, um, there might be, well, there is definitely an effect on sleep, but the research on the relationship between sleep and menopause is still very unclear in the research, hmm. but we know it affects it somehow. Right. Um, so that's something important to know because the sleep strategies that apply to men may not apply to women, or if they're too general, we might need something specific, but I'll still go over the general strategies because I really do believe they help. Um, and definitely when you don't sleep well, 
uh, it can cause brain fog or brain fog can cause sleep issues. And so brain fog can be the cause or the consequence of poor sleep, but so can mood disorders like anxiety or depression or any other mood disorder. Um, So that can either come from poor sleep or it can cause poor sleep. I think that's really important to note because some people don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, did did the menopausal symptoms become more apparent because of poor sleep or did the menopausal symptoms cause poor sleep? We we just don't know, but it's important to assume both directions. Uh, And the reason I say that is because when we go over the strategies, there's physiological based strategies and there's environment based strategies. And you're going to really have to experiment with what works because of those biological principles. Makes sense. And the idea is that, you know, if, if it seems like the behavioral strategies like aren't working at first, it's just like, well, we're not going to just give up on them and just turn the TV on and sit on the couch all night or just get up and like, we still have to apply those behavioral strategies uh, over time. Like we can't just give up on it. That's right. And we don't want to kind of exhaust all of our willpower or attention on one thing and then lose all hope. So motivation plays a big role here. Um, And just like sleep doesn't really match subjective to objective in women, um, some some women are sensitive to hormonal shifts and some are not. So everyone's experience could be different and usually is. Everyone's an individual. So I just want to note those things uh, before we talk about the strategies. Um, So give us some strategies. Yeah. So in brain health coaching, we take three different approaches in this system of brain health coaching. So there's top-down strategies or brain-first strategies. There's bottom-up or body-based strategies. And then there's external inner environment-based strategies. And the reason I, uh, in particular, about separating those is because it, it tells us the mechanism. So if someone says, oh, I tried something, but it didn't work, well, which category was it? Was it body-based? Did you change your physiology? Was it mind-based or brain-based? Or yeah. did you change something in your environment? And so we'll go through each of them, and we'll start okay. with uh, the environment. And okay. environment is one of the biggest dictators of behavior um, because we are a creature of our environment, right? Yeah. So in, when it comes to environment, uh, we talked about the suprachiasmatic nucleus, getting outside, getting sunlight, regulating circadian rhythm. Uh, the opposite side of that is light exposure at night. And mm-hmm. so you generally want the light exposure from screens to match what's going on outside, and typically they do not. So you want to avo- avoid excessive screen time. If you don't yep. measure your screen time on your phone or your laptop, you should. There's apps. One of them is called Moment uh, that goes on your iPhone. I don't know of any laptop-based or yeah. uh, web-based ones. I think there, there are ones if you look for them. Uh, I think it's called Rescue Time that can okay. measure your laptop time. But you want to be able to adjust the brightness on your screens, uh, track your time. There's some uh, screen protectors or glasses that yeah. can actually block harmful light. Um, but you really want to be able to manage that because that can really screw up circadian rhythm. Sometimes yeah. we'll feel tired. Uh, we'll get home from work, we turn on the TV, and then our subjective experience changes because of the light augmenting our brain activity. And right. so we want to be mindful of modulating screen, screen time and unhealthy light sources. Normally, you want to go dark around 8 or 9 p.m. if you can, um, and just be as conscious about the screen brightness as you can throughout the day. Yeah. And screen, screen time, I have way too much screen time throughout my day because a lot of what I do is on the laptop or on my phone. Yeah. And so I just try to go for walks while I'm talking on the phone. I try to break away from screen time. I every, you know, 30 minutes to 60 minutes, 
I, yeah. I, I do different eye exercises looking in different directions because they're always fixated. I massage the muscles gently around my eyes and I do deep breathing exercises, not because I feel stressed, but because I know my unconscious nervous system, it's called the autonomic nervous system or the ANS is experiencing stress. So imagine there's uh, a little monkey inside your brain that isn't conscious. He's just getting all this stimulus and you need to give him rest or her right. rest. Right. Okay. And so yeah. that's a good way to look at it. And we, we want to be able to modulate the sensory inputs via light, screen time, noise coming in through our bodies and our brains. And we want to be able to recover from that like we would a workout. So that's one of the first environmental strategies. Um, another one is blacking out your room with blackout shades or wearing these glasses or just turning off the lights in your room. Uh, the more darkness, the better. According yeah. to Pat Byrne, who I mentioned earlier, he said sometimes you want it to be so dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Got it. Yeah. Um, and that's really hard to do, but you can buy blackout shades. I think there's cheaper solutions as well. But if you yeah. just do stuff to augment uh, or, or block out the light in your, in your sleep environment, your, yeah. your bedroom, then that's really good to do. Um, good it really is. Uh, another environmental strategy is limiting the noise in your environment or providing therapeutic noise in your environment, whether it's binaural beats or some, some calming music that can definitely help. Right. Um, also, this is more of a body-based strategy, but an environment strategy as well because it's out of your body is uh, warming your body up. And that could be through a hot shower. It could be through self-myofascial release or self-massage using foam rolling. When you warm the body like that, it's really helpful uh, for sleep because it makes you sleepier. And not a lot of people, yeah, not a lot of people do that, but stretching and foam rolling, not for a mechanical purpose, um, but for a, uh, a brain health purpose, a sleep preparation purpose. It's almost like you would warm up for a sport. You need to warm up for sleep. That's um, so interesting. Literally I mean, because, and figuratively. Yeah. And I mean, another win-win strategy. Absolutely. For yeah. physical recovery. 100%. And, yeah. you know, the, the periods of time for physical recovery are from 10 to 12 p.m. So if you're asleep before 10, like you, you don't go to don't lay in bed at 10, be asleep by 10. Because if you can, and you're doing all these uh, sleep, sleep hygiene strategies, that is the time for physical repair. And so if you're <laughs> on a weight loss strategy, or even just for menopause or just general health, you want to be asleep by then so your body can physically repair itself, all of its physical processes. And then the period of time from 12 to 4 a.m. is all the cognitive and mental repair, the memory consolidation phase. That's for your brain. And so uh, that's when your brain gets washed, literally gets washed with the cerebral spinal fluid to take away all the toxins from the day. Um, and it has this neuroprotective, neuroregenerative effect. And this is why if you're not sleeping or there's a lot of wakeful states, even if you're not aware of them, you can wake up and your cognition, your awareness, your alertness is very much impacted detrimentally. Wow. So the initial stages of sleep, basically the first two hours are mm -hmm. physical repair. And then the latter stages or possibly the next four hours are more cognitive. That's repair. right. That's right. Yeah. So it's really important to prepare. And it's not like you control those while you're sleeping. You're unconscious, no, right? Exactly. But if you set the environment up for success and you prepare for it, we can assume that you're preparing yourself to experience the quality and the health benefits of that, of those phases. And so okay. temperature is the other environmental strategy. Having a nice cool temperature in your room 
Um, I'm a person who gets lots of night sweats, so says my girlfriend. I'm just not aware of it. And so we're now looking into mattresses and um, you know sheets that help with temperature regulation. There's mattress pads that actually adjust to your temperature based on the time period of the night. So there's hmm. a lot of great tools out there to help adjust your environment. Yeah, and I think it's worthwhile investing in something like that because... 100%, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that sleep is one of the most overlooked aspects of health and so many people like they you know we're just so busy all the time and and it's just an afterthought people just shortchange themselves on on sleep and and actually how so many people could actually sleep themselves thin and sleep themselves into better health in terms of cognition as well did you oh, have anything that you wanted to do as a top-down strategy before totally, we talking totally. about exercise Yes, yes. So, sorry, I'm taking a little bit long, but I really want to be thorough. It's so interesting. Um, the top-down strategies or mind or brain-first strategies would be doing anything with your mind, uh, whether it's some sort of meditation or gratitude journaling, or if you feel like your brain's really active and kind of worrying, spinning its gears a little bit, uh, maybe writing down all the worries from the day or things you have to do the next day. Whatever's on top of your mind, externalize it onto paper so that you can re reframe it or get it out of your head. Uh, yeah. deep, you know, deep breathing, which is a body-based strategy, but is usually coupled with mindfulness or meditation, um, can help. And I think that doing those top-down strategies is helpful. Um, there's also neurofeedback, which I won't get into too much, but there's consumer-based devices like the Versus headset, but there's also clinical neurofeedback that is kind of like biofeedback for your heartbeat, but for your brain waves. Um, mm -hmm. and that can really help with sleep and calming the mind. That's another top-down strategy, cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive reframing, cognitive reappraisal strategies, where if you have a busy mind and you reappraise or reframe the meaning of it, maybe you feel stressful, but oh, why am I stressed? Oh, I'm thinking about work. Well, is work really stressful or is it a blessing? Then I've reframed it. Then it's less stressful. So now my mind's less busy. Those are right. types of things that are top-down strategies. And sometimes I will refer to a cognitive behavioral therapist because sometimes it's stress-induced anxiety, and people don't think they have anxiety, and maybe they don't. It's not diagnosable, but it's induced by stressors from the workplace or in their relationships and their day-to-day -day life. And cognitive behavioral therapy strategies can really help calming that down and managing that. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes I'll bring in a therapist for that. Um, and maybe it's just for a couple sessions to get the strategies and then implement them. So those right. are a few top-down strategies uh, that I really like to use. I think, I think just being aware of these three strategies is really important too, because a lot of people might just look at environment, yeah. you know, the, the whole idea of rolling. I just love that. That's new one. That's a new one to me that I yeah. would definitely be talking about, uh, you know, and just even the, like, I, I'm a big, I, um, advocate again of the gratitude journaling and reframing of yeah. things or doing a brain dump. Like I'm going to write down all my worries that, you know, or all my to do's. Sometimes you go, you lay in bed thinking of all the things you have to do tomorrow. It's like, okay, I'm just going to write it all down. I'm yep. going to do a brain dump and then kind of switch your thinking around. But it's just a matter of cognitively, like notice what you're noticing. Hey, I'm noticing my head's going around in circles. Okay. I'm going to just stop that by this strategy. So sometimes it's just creating that awareness that's going to to trigger better sleep. So it's, it's not something that literally happens overnight. It's a, it's kind of, we have to test the waters and, and try different strategies. Absolutely. And then the bottom up strategies, the body based ones, which are my favorite, we already talked about taking a hot shower, 
foam rolling, doing self-massage, anything that calms the nervous system down. And when I say nervous system, I mean the autonomic nervous system, the stuff that is not conscious to you, but can affect right. you consciously. Yeah. And so just assume uh, your nervous system's active and you got to calm it down, but it's not your conscious brain. It's that, once again, the nervous system you're not conscious of. So doing stretching and deep breathing, even mm. if you don't feel stressed, can really right. help uh, put you in a rest and digest state. It's called rest and digest for a reason. Rest is a huge part of being in that parasympathetic state. So anything that any breathing techniques that get you there um, are helpful. So deep breathing, you could do box breathing, which is breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, and then hold for four seconds. And just repeating that process is Mm -hmm. do it for five to 10 minutes. It sounds like a long time and it is, but it really dramatically changes your physiology. Wow. Um, So those are, those are the other strategies for body base. I think it's important what not to do with your body. You want to exercise regularly, but not right before Before bed bed. because regular exercise, particularly in the afternoon can help deepen sleep. So do something around, you know, lunchtime if you can. Me, I'm a late workout type of person. I tend to uh, procrastinate and then I, all my tasks get pushed back and I'm like, oh, I got to fit my workout in. Um, So sometimes I break this rule, but strenuous exercise within the two hours before bedtime can decrease your ability to fall asleep. But from my personal experience, when I don't do strenuous exercise, it's almost like play-based exercise and just moving around a little bit just to get the jitters out helps me fall asleep. So you don't want to right. do high-intensity interval training two hours before bed. That can really uh, hurt your ability to fall asleep and have good quality sleep. Uh, of course, there's nutritional body-based strategies. Avoid caffeine four to six hours before bedtime. Avoid alcohol four alcohol. to six hours. Yeah. Um, napping during the day can help. Have a, have a bedtime and awakening time. This is a pretty well-known practice. Don't have heavy, spicy, sugary foods four to six hours before bedtime. Um, These are all really important strategies. If you try a light snack, like um, have you heard of tryptophan? Mm -hmm. Yes. So so warm milk and foods high in tryptophan, such as bananas, turkey can help sleep. Um, If your stomach is too empty, it can actually interfere. Um, We talked about relaxation techniques. Other ones include things like uh, body scanning or progressive muscle relaxation where you tense your muscles, then you release and you're comparing yep. that with breath. Uh, there's a type of yoga called yoga nidra. You can do things like Tai Chi or Qigong. Um, those are a lot of great body-based strategies. Great. Wow. What yeah. a encyclopedia on sleep here. I also liked, I mean, you, you touched a little bit on exercise and I liked what we talked about a few weeks ago which I feel is very important to mention because a lot of my listeners, you know, they might be active, but their active might be gardening or walking and then they're, and then they're struggling with sleep. So do you want to talk a little bit about exercise intensity and the ability to get into deep levels of sleep? Sure. Um, I'll just say that once again, I'm going to default to the variability principle where if you're gardening or doing house tours, that's very low intensity And if you're doing like gardening, if you're doing it continuously for an hour, that's almost like steady state exercise, but it's low intensity. That makes sense. If you're switching between different house chores, that's actually interval training, just really, really low intensity, if that makes sense. Correct. Yes. And so you want very, so you're actually getting half of the puzzle. You just need the high intensity versions of steady state and the high intensity versions of interval training just as much. But we actually do need those low intensity activities like walking, gardening, when we yes. look at centenarians, the people that live extremely long into their old age, um, they, they are doing those low-intensity activities on a regular basis. So they're important, but we also want to augment or supplement those 
with a variety of other high intensity or moderate intensity activities. What I would like to talk about is how different types of activity affect the brain. Um, I just want to say before I go into that, that regular activity of any type uh, positively affects cognition and can improve sleep, can improve menopausal symptoms, stuff like that. Um, but if you're suffering from a particular symptom, sometimes there's a particular type of exercise that you might want to engage in. Um, right. So, so for example, if I'm struggling with anxiety or anxious like symptoms, um, the area of the brain responsible for that's called the basal ganglia. So coordination based exercise, rhythm based exercise, exercise that's you want intensity, but not too much intensity because that's too much fight or flight. So if you look at Zumba or you look at yoga or you look at exercise modalities like animal flow, things that require coordination, choreography, um, some sort of sequencing, um, these things can actually really help with anxious-like symptoms. Interesting. Um, it is. It's really, really interesting. And then if you have some sort of depressive symptoms, aerobic exercise, uh, anywhere from 60 to 80% intensity of your max heart rate is really well proven to help with that um, simply because of the neurochemicals released. Now, resistance ah. training improves what's called executive function, which is just a fancy term for mental ability or cognitive abilities. And all, like I said, all types of physical activity helps with executive function over the lifespan uh, and cognitive performance and cognitive health. But resistance training um, doesn't provide the same benefits as coordination training would if for those anxious symptoms or the depressive symptoms, but should be a part of your exercise regimen as well. Um, Interesting. So huh. it's just a fancy way of saying we need variability. And it's not that I don't need coordination-based exercise. I still do it, but I have attention issues. And so that's in my prefrontal cortex in the front of my brain. And so aerobic exercise for a steady amount of time helps with the blood flow and neurochemistry that I need for my condition to help manage those symptoms. Well, this is like looking through... A, a kind of a different window of prescriptive exercise, which is very interesting. I mean, I, for the most part, my job I see is to just get people moving. Absolutely. And then I, I, I love it that once people are moving, then just becoming more aware of, you know, possible issues like maybe anxiety or depression, and then having a bit more like working with you would be you would be able to prescribe more um, effective movement for better brain health and better brain health would equate to a happier life, basically. Uh, absolutely. And one area I'm really uh, excited about and something I study is this idea of enhancing exercise with cognitive challenges or cognitive stimulus. And so we all know brain games, things like Lumosity or Sudoku, stuff like that. Now, the NIH has shown that these brain games are somewhat ineffective on their own in terms of creating long-term or far-transferring cognitive benefits. Um, now, if you play them and you swear by them, don't stop. Uh, if you enjoy them, please keep going. But if cognitive abilities can be trained with these games and then cognitive abilities can also be improved by physical activity and exercise, why not combine the two? And hmm. so this is what I focus my research on a lot. And... Um, there was a 2014 study, it was a meta-analysis, which is just compiling a bunch of different papers together, showing that postmenopausal women compared to healthy fertile women performed worse on tasks of verbal memory and verbal fluency. And so uh, a lot of gynecologists or hormone specialists will report women going through menopause or who are postmenopausal 
um, have word finding troubles. I don't know if you can relate to this or hmm. uh, your clients can relate to this. Uh, I have Absolutely. word finding. I have word finding troubles myself. I don't think it's related to menopause. Menopause, but, right? Um, it, I think that's really interesting that that specific cognitive domain is something that's troublesome. And so, if we looked at it in a certain way, what types of exercise include memory and verbal fluency or verbal memory? Um, maybe it's a class like yoga or Zumba where they're calling out these auditory cues. So your blood's pumping, you have you know, these positive neurochemicals in place, and maybe you have to respond to auditory cues, um, like, okay, now we're doing this position, and now this move, and you have to remember verbally what you're supposed to do. And then maybe there's, I, I think there's an exercise called NIA, N-I-A, it's almost like a martial art mixed mm -hmm. with positive affirmations. I might be wrong, but I know there's types of exercises like that. Um, there's a book by uh, Dr. Wendy Suzuki about this. I, I can't remember the particular type of exercise. I'll have to find out and put in the show notes. But you're exercising and yelling out positive affirmations as you're doing it. And I think hmm. that's really good for psychological health. I personally don't do that. Um, but it's interesting. What if we did exercise? And uh, if you're doing bicep curls and just yelling out words that you memorize <laughs> at the beginning of your workout, you may caution, you may make less friends, you may lose friends. True. But True. hey, it could really help you. So um, so interesting. It's kind what, of cu very cutting edge. It, very much so. And one of my good friends, Dr. Sarah McEwen um, from uh, UCSD, she's a, she has a PhD in psychology and she did research of people that were on a cycle uh, that were doing ergonomic cycling, got their heart rate up, and they did memory exercises significantly to improve their memory after a few weeks of training. And so if you just create this own environment for yourself where maybe you're doing it in your head, or maybe if you have a bike at home or you're running and you're just, you memorize some words at the start of your run and then you keep, you know, bringing them up every right. or something like that. Just be creative and start training that verbal memory, that verbal fluency. Um, Very because, interesting. because this particular population that we're dealing with seems to struggle with it. That's very interesting. So something to think about. Something That's to think awesome. about. Yeah. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about, because I want to be, um, you know, respectful of your time, Ryan, is just what role does weight and fat play in cognition and mental health? Because, you know, most women 40, 50 and beyond, you know, that's a big worry for them is, you know, their weight. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are some emerging studies showing that, um, you know, dietary fat intake and cognitive decline in women are linked uh, typically, it's done. Uh, the studies are done on women with diabetes. So there's also something going on with insulin, and I know there's a you know relationship between insulin and cognition. But I, generally, um, I don't know how conclusive this is. But I did see some research recently showing you know the more belly fat you have, the worse your cognitive health is. Um, and that's not to make people like, oh I, gosh, my belly fat's making me stupid. <laughs> but the more, the more body fat percentage you have, and this is very clear in uh, children all the way up to elderly adults who are obese, their cognitive abilities are just not as good as, as right. healthy girls. And so um, we might want to lose fat. Um, not, I think it's abdominal fat as well. Um, I think it was specifically abdominal fat. And so we might not want to lose fat for, I mean, a lot of people want to lose fat for the way they Aesthetic look. reasons. Yeah, right. but what but if we just, lost fat for cognitive reasons? Well, it just gives us a little bit more motivation 
And I mean, it's kind of the chicken or the egg idea as well, because, you know, you've probably experienced it yourself, you know, and with clients that when we start to look and feel better, that we're more confident, we're thinking more clearly, like, it's just like, was it because we lost weight? Was it because we're actually thinking more clearly? But there's definite relationship between the two. Yeah. And there's actually, it's not just about fat. Um, There's a hypothesis that's recently uh, gotten some evidence that low muscle mass is associated with cognitive impairment in women, older women Mm. specifically. Um, It it mostly has to do with the causes of frailty and functional decline. So we're talking about older women. Right. Um, But, you know, I think if you make sure that you maintain lean muscle mass and uh, low fat percent, healthy low fat percentage, then that can help with cognition. Well, I I think the big message from this, Ryan, is just that healthy diet, healthy sleep, uh, exercise, and I mean, we can dial that in, you know, up or down, depending on, you know, what our needs are, a consistent Mm -hmm. application of those three uh, factors long term, there's just so many benefits in terms of weight maintenance, cognitive, um, you know, cognitive health, and um, like, it's just so far reaching. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you, you spoiled it in the beginning of the interview here. Uh, you, you put it all out there and it is that simple. Uh, once again, it's just how do we get there? Do we do it through top-down strategies, environment strategies, or body-based strategies? And, and all three. And all three. That's right. And once we start stacking these approaches, that's when they become more powerful is when you combine a top-down, bottom-up environment a strategy all together, you get multiple ones. And let's say, okay, I have one in each domain. Well, let's get better at them. Let's get more advanced. Let's start stacking and combining them. Uh, right. This is a lifelong journey. And so you should really specialize in advancing that. And, and I want to say just lastly is that you've provided so much information that I don't want people to get overwhelmed to be thinking, <laughs> well, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But just the application of one, one thing. Is yeah. What's that, what, what's that one behavior that's going to move the needle for you? Right. The whole model of, you know, brain-based, body-based or environment-based is just to give you almost an easel, like an art easel for experimentation. Because if I tried something, if I tried meditation before sleep and it didn't work, and then I tried, you know, changing my temperature in my environment, but changing my internal temperature work from a body perspective, great, you've experimented and found something that moved the needle. So don't get discouraged if you try something that doesn't work try it from another perspective or try another variation of it until you find something that moves the needle. And once you have it, hold on to it and reinforce it, turn it into that habit that can create a powerful outcome for your, your brain and bodily health. And then try something else, but we don't have to apply everything today because that's the, you know, the recipe for disaster. When we try too much too soon, we actually don't even know what is working. And then we might just get discouraged because all the lifestyle changes are like, well, I can't maintain this. Yeah. And you've heard of the studies showing that multitasking reduces productivity. That's what I would call lifestyle multitasking. And there's so many books coming out nowadays. Oh, the habits of success, the powerful habits of health. It's like a list of like 50 things to do, right? Right. It's just like, oh, just make these your habits and you'll be fine. It's like, do you know how hard that is? That's right. Ridiculous. That's, we just know that's an a emotionally uh, targeted way of using information overload. That's not right. the practical way to achieve better health, a better lifestyle. Pick the one thing, make it your habit. Don't be overloaded by information. Don't do lifestyle uh, multitasking. multitasking. I love it's that. Just, it's really ineffective. So lifestyle single tasking 
is I the love most it. effective way to create long-term beneficial change. Well, you have provided so much great information, Ryan, and we'll have uh, some more information in the show notes. Uh, anybody that, that would love to you know, stay connected with Ryan, it's ryanglatt.com. And uh, just refer to the show notes. We'll get some great information for you there. And I really appreciate your time with us, Ryan. I, I know Thank I'm going to be uh, picking, literally picking your brain a lot to help my clients as well. So thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. This has been the Shauna Kay Show. Head to podcast.shaunakay.com for show notes and more. See you next time.